0: We're going to be talking largely and referring largely to the story of Jesus in the temple. So just keep that part of the story in your mind. Uh, We're going to to just be pulling out a few simple truths. We've been going through a series on worship over the last couple of weeks, and uh, we've we've taken kind of as our framework, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And as a church, I think it's right that we come come together and we try and ask, you know, what is this? What is this what is this is going on when we're singing? What is this going on when we're praying? What what on earth is worship? What is this thing that we are committed to? And we're really digging into that. And so this is this is not off the point. It's just a little bit to one side. We're still in the idea of worship. We're in the temple. And we're just going to observe a story and pull some lessons from it really quickly. First of all, um oh, she's asleep. That's so nice. First of all, you'll notice Steen Abbey, perhaps, in these first couple of weeks that there's um, there's a lot of extra stuff you need uh, when you've got a child. Have you noticed this? You know, for, I mean look how small Ava is and yet you just need so much stuff, don't you? You can't the days of popping out to the shops. You don't pop out anywhere anymore when you've got a tiny baby. There's no there's no popping out. It's like a military operation. You've got to go and you know, you've got bags for this and bags for that and then you look at the weather and then you think about when the feeds were and where the, where the food's going to be ready. And, and by the time you've like assessed everything, you just think, blow it, let's just not go out. It's, just not, it's, not, worth, it's not worth going out to, to do that. And so kids come with a lot of baggage. But the baggage that kids come with, and I want you to kind of hold this thought in your head, it's just really this stuff. There's a lovely, sweet, beautiful innocence about kids that we're going to think about. They're a real help to us in some respects. Grown-ups, on the other hand, We've not got the amount of baggage and luggage physically that kids have, but man, have we got baggage. Have we got luggage when we come? And, and I think, I think you, see this, you see this when you get a bit older and you become a parent yourself when you look down through your kids. You, you see your baggage because you realize, and this is a bit of a confessional, you realize what you're putting on your children. So I am, and I didn't realize this until t- my kids pointed it out for me, but I, it turns out I'm quite a... Scaredy cat. There's a, there's a lot of, that's a rubbish phrase, scaredy cat. Where'd that come from? But I am, I am a person who at times in his life is governed by fear. Does this, is, this, is this you? Have you, have you got any, any, any issues like this? The idea of flying on a plane, and it's not been my whole life, but you know for the last couple of years, it just terrifies me. And, and, and I've only begun to notice that it's an issue, that it's baggage, that it weighs me down because now my, my kids see it. The stuff that weighs me down, my kids see. And then you realize as you go through life that human beings, grown ups, not so much kids, although they're chasing after us, but grown ups acquire this sort of baggage like bitterness, anger, selfishness, like just bad habits that you just build up and accumulate over and over again until you find like you've got, you've just got this like suitcase on your back full of junk. That you, that you just don't really need. It's not really helpful. Whereas kids, on the other hand, when you observe kids, I mean, you know, babies make poo and nappies and you've got loads of junk that comes with them. But kids have got this sweet innocence. So just to be theologically correct, they're born in shape and shapen in sin. I'm not saying they're not that. But they've not got this exposure to life that we have that kind of scars us as adults. Kids have got this like wonderful have you seen this, this wonderful capacity, to be honest? I've had some horrific moments with my kids when they've chosen to be very honest. Do you know what I mean? Very honest. When somebody has looked perhaps slightly different than everybody else, my kids will be really honest about that. When a younger person's been married to an older person, my kids will be really honest about that. And it's just, But they've got this beautiful capacity. They've not got this filter that you get as a grown-up where you can hide stuff. They've just, if, if there's a truth there, they will say it. They've got no fear. There's a, there's a certain, and you'll, maybe if you're a parent, you'll have seen this with your kids. There's a certain gap. I think it's, I think, you know, you'll, so you learn this stuff and you accumulate this stuff. But probably between about the age of five and ten, there's just no fear. We went to this place called Go Ape with, with our kids. And, and I was just, my legs were like jelly. And I was 12 feet in the air. And my kids were just, had no sense of danger at all. And so kids have got this lovely, beautiful innocence. And we've got this useful, awesome wisdom, but like loads of baggage. Jesus sees this in, uh, in, two, in, in some of his disciples. Um, ridiculously, they're arguing about who is the greatest. So they've been around with him for three years of his ministry. And towards the end of Jesus' life, you know, when he's about to be crucified, the last week or so ridiculously, as is, as is the human way, they start arguing about who is the greatest, who's going to be the greatest. And do you know what Jesus' remedy for this is? Do you know the story? He grabs hold of a little child, and he pulls the little child right into the middle of these disciples, these great disciples, these disciples who've had the chance to learn from Jesus himself, from the very word of God. They've had this chance to learn from him, and they choose The week before, he's about to be crucified. The week before, he's about to redeem the world to have an argument about who's the greatest. And Jesus looks at these guys and he says, man, you need to learn something. The only way I can think for you to learn it, the best, the quickest way I can demonstrate it is just to get a little child, put him before you, and say, look, unless you can become like one of these, you won't get to understand the things of the kingdom of God. What is he saying in this sentence? He's saying, man, you adults come with some baggage. We can be so contaminated by life. Seeing godly things becomes impossible. We've been thinking about what worship is. Sometimes it can be so hard for us to, to worship God because we're so weighed down. We've picked up so much junk, so much rubbish, so much bitterness. By the time we come to sit in the pews and look for God and be confronted by him, to worship him properly is just too difficult. And I think Jesus, you know, maybe maybe if he came amongst us now, maybe the sermon would just be to pick up a little child and say, look, learn from this. There's a real sense that even though the children aren't perfect, they're not as contaminated as, contaminated as we are, and they point towards a holy God. So let's just, um, let's dive into this story uh, that we've read extensively, and that was super, um, and let's just find out a little bit more, because uh, we're thinking about worship, and this is a story in the temple, and I want you just to have in mind, so sometimes, yeah, I, I, I'm a very visual person, so when I read something like this, I, I see it, I see it out loud, and I want just that helps me to share that with you, so I'm going to. I'm just going to ask you to try and see it through my eyes. So I, I almost read it as a bit of a pantomime or a theater sketch when I see this story. So keep flicking through it. There's, there's definitely the protagonist. There's definitely the central characters that, is, that are Jesus and what he does with the, the people, you know, the money changers that turn the tables over. There's definitely that. But I want you to just have kind of in your mind's eye that there's two groups of people watching on. There's the experts in the law. Let's say they're over here somewhere. They're looking in this way. Maybe arms folded, you know, sort of uniform, different hats on. And there are the children. This is the cast. Okay, so get your head around this idea. The story takes place in Jerusalem, in the temple. And uh, I want you to try and imagine the story in Passover week. It's... um. I mean, Jerusalem is absolutely rammed to the teeth. It's rammed to the back nines. Every, every man and his dog has come there. You know, there's been cens- census done by the Roman government, and there were millions of people. And this is an old city, and there are millions of people. And you can smell the flavour of Passover. You know, what happens at Passover, the week before Passover, the whole you know Israel comes together at Jerusalem, makes a pilgrimage to the temple, brings their animals. They're donkeys and and everything, and they're coming to make themselves right with God. They're coming to find God. They're going towards the temple. And in the temple courts is the place where you'll go and you'll make your way into the temple. And what often happens in there, the practice that had established was that, and this is kind of a human thing, isn't it? Any way that there is to make a book, humans will find to make a book. So because people are coming so far, they're not bringing their own animal. They get to the temple, and you think, And um, these these people in the temple are willing to sell the animals, change the money. So they're making a book out of it. And Jesus comes in to this place. And we've got to remember, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Holy Son of God. He's got, you know, the idea in his mind with the temple is that people will come and see God. And he gets there. And it's more like the London Stock Exchange. God is just kind of completely forgotten. And there's just corruption everywhere. And there's money grabbing everywhere. And this is supposed to be the place of worship And Jesus says Find my spot. Jesus says this should be a house of prayer. And you have made it a den of robbers. This should be the place where God is met. So the Gentiles, if you're a Gentile, if you're if you're not a Jew, this is the only place in the temple you can go. This is your only shot to sort of come and have time with God. And Jesus comes and looks around there and he sees the fact that if you're a Gentile, if you're not a Jewish person, you've just not really got any chance to worship. Because there's no peace, there's no quiet, there's just corruption everywhere. Jesus says, you've made this like a den of robbers. And and I've been wrestling to try and get my head around what this actually looked like this week. Jesus comes and drives everyone out. And I've kind of just took that as red, as Jesus kind of just went and sort of did this, sort of action. But that's, it's quite a big job. The temple courts are quite a big place. These guys are selling, trading, and making money to, to drive everybody out. And Jesus turns the tables over and he clears off everybody out. And this culture in the temple of just kind of making a book, not really being bothered about the poor guy, just gets taken away. And Jesus is left there on his own. And slowly but surely, the lame, the blind... And the sick replace these people and make their way back into the temple. The culture completely changes. And watching on all the time are the religious experts and these children. Watching all these things happen. And the lame and the sick come before Jesus and Jesus begins to heal them. And there are two reactions. And I want you to think about both these reactions. The Pharisees and the religious experts and the leaders of the law are the word that they use is indignant. They are raging mad. But these children, these kids, these innocents, these naive young ones, they start to sing Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, it's, um, just to stop and pause on this thought, Hosanna's not my favorite word. I was made as a child to sing. You know, I'd bring my mates along to church, uh, like youth clubs and that sort of thing, and we'd have to sing the gospel songs. And, you know, Hosanna would come up and I'd be, I'd be like, Dad, can we not sing another song? Hos- oh, what does Hosanna even mean? You know, it sounds like this kind of Christian sort of hippie sort of word. It's kind of uncomfortable. I really struggled with it. But actually, Hosanna just means, Lord, save me. Hosanna is a cry for help. And these kids had seen their Savior. They'd, you know, you've know, got to imagine these kids walking around the streets of Jerusalem all this time. They've heard the stories about this figure that is the Messiah, this guy that's going to come and redeem Israel and save everybody, they've heard these stories and they've just observed Jesus clear out all this corruption and start to heal people. And they've just said straight away, this is the Messiah. The religious experts have dismissed Jesus. Just think about this concept for a second. In the temple that God created in the place where God was supposed to be found, who is the only people in the whole world, in the whole of this temple, to recognize Jesus in this moment? It's kids. Everybody else. Everybody else misses it. These people are religious experts. They are sort of trained in Judaism. They are people who've devoted their whole lives to religion, and yet they don't see God, they don't see Jesus. It's not worship what they're doing. The only worship that comes out of the temple that day is kids, innocent kids. I wonder if it's just worth thinking about the fact that, and as I thought about this concept, I thought about our church, I thought about the broader church in, in England and the broader church in the world, and I thought, I wonder how many times that we've been able to come along and be religious, do religious things, um, sort of be at church, be around church, and yet miss Jesus. We want to see God, but sometimes sometimes there's, there's so much corruption, there's so much luggage, there's so much baggage in our lives that we just, we miss him. So we've got these baddies the baddies that turn the tables up, and I want us. So whenever, whenever I've read this story, I thought really black and white. This is a really black and white concept. The guys that are, that are robbing everybody—that's just they're just really bad. That's the bottom line. That's the end of it. But just think about this for a second. These guys, this is all they'd ever been used to. This pattern, you know, it's not—it's not like they just probably did not like they just come up with some corrupt plan. This, this, this is what church was to them. They came along. You know, and and there's good in what they were doing. They were bringing people along to Jesus. You've got, you've got to have some sympathy. There's probably one guy there who Jesus has turned the table over. He's walking out and he's scratching his head thinking, I'm not sure what I've done wrong here. I'm not sure where I've gone wrong. Because this, this has been my plan. I've, it's always been like this. This is what church is, isn't it? It's like this. You come along and, and then there's the sacrifice. People give you money. And you, yeah, they end up still getting, to the Lord, still getting towards meeting God. And as I thought about this, I thought, man, that is... Man, that's been me. I've, I've, I've had a long periods of my life where I've, I have, I've rocked up at church. I've been around church. I've brought people to church. And yet I've had so much baggage. There's been kind of just an emptiness that's come along with my face, faith. I've kind of accumulated rubbish. And that amount of rubbish that I've accumulated has meant that what I've been doing has just not been worship. This, this guy, the trader guy, he's kind of st- probably a bit scratchy-headed. He's a bit stunned. He's like, I'm sh- I thought I was doing something at least right. And what you realize when you look at a character like this, and it's the same with lots of us, is that he's been going along in his life, and there's been good things, and there's been bad things, and he's accumulated the both. And he's faced a day in his life where he's met God. And what God has said to him is, what you're doing now is not worshipful. And when I read that, I look back on the years of my life and I thought, man, there's been long periods of my life where what I've been doing is not worshipful. I've just got too much baggage. I've just got too much rubbish. And the moral lesson in all this comes from these little children. That's where the lesson is. The only people in the temple who bring worship this day our little children, who see the truth very clearly. I want us to think about these kids just for a second. Jesus would say to us, unless you become like little children, you cannot see the kingdom of God. If we want to bring honest worship to our God, as we're endeavoring to do over these last couple of months, I think there's going to be some things that we're going to have to unlearn. There's stuff that we will have accumulated. There's stuff that we will have brought into church every single Sunday. There'll have been rhythms and patterns of life that we'll have been going through as we've come before God. You know, church politics, stuff that drives us mad, sin that we've got in our own life. There's a whole bunch of stuff. And we get, and we come to the point where we're going to worship, and it just can't mean anything. Because we're just weighed down by this luggage. And I think Jesus would say to us, you might have to unlearn some stuff. You might have to spend a little bit of time looking at a little child, gazing at the innocence that's in their eyes. It's funny, isn't it? You get to be an adult, you think you're the person who's imparting all the wisdom, and yet sometimes it's your children that impart the wisdom to you. I've told this story enough times now, and I I genuinely apologize (laughs) if you've heard it before, but... There was a moment a couple of weeks ago when we were returning, when we were going on holiday, where it was so clear that the moral lesson came from our kids. We were driving to the south of France. It's a long, it's a long trip. It's a thousand mile. You know. And again, we drove to France because I'm scared of the planes. That's why we were going to the south of France. Drove driving to the south of France, and we got as far as Paris, and then we stopped... Overnight, and we got up the next day for a breakfast, and we left, we, I'm going to say we, we left a bag at the side of the road, which had in it 500 euros, our passports, anything that was massively important, you you name it, you just put it in that bag, and we left it all there, like idiots, and bombed down the road, singing, we're all going on a summer holiday, little did we know. We get down the road, and we reach a place called Claremont F.D., you can just see the foothills of the Pyrenees. You're there, you're almost in France. The, the noise was loud and I filled the car up with as much fuel as I could put in and I said to my wife, just go and pay for this, would you? And she turned around, almost instantly went sheet white and said, I've left my bag in Paris. We don't have any money. And our hearts sank. And I had terrible words in my mind f- for my wife, if I'm really honest. And, and the kids were crying the whole way back. Then we had this this moment where kids, in their innocence and their naivety and their honesty, brought to bear a huge lesson on our lives. The lesson at Sunday school the week before that Jude had gave was, just trust God. That was the line. Sometimes with kids clubs, we just try and go for one line. Just trust God. It was pretty simple. Just trust God. And so as we turn in to go back, me and Jude had an altercation words were exchanged but the message the theology from the back of the room was "But we just trust God right we just trust God don't we and then the reason from the grown ups back was yes we just trust God but we've been idiots and we've done a stupid thing so now we get the passports and we remain angry and we, we talk angrily at everybody else and the message continued from the back just trust God let's pray about it and the reality it's got a happy ending there was a nice gentleman who picked up the bag and by the miracle of god's grace through facebook we found yeah we found we found the bag and we you know there was a 500 mile detour and a bad moment in our marriage but apart from that we got we got on holiday just fine but the lesson was from the kids who just had managed to, even in the heat of the awful moment, remember the promises of God. Just trust God. Just trust God. And in that, the grown-ups, because of the contamination of life, had forgotten it. Paul, the Apostle Paul, struggled with this. He says, and it's one of the best chapters in the Bible, really worth reading. Read through the book of Romans. It's this big theological masterpiece, and right in the middle, there's just this like confessional It's just this admission that I'm a screw-up and I get things wrong all the time. And he says, says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. What he's saying is, the road I'm on, I end up doing good things and I end up doing bad things as well. And another part of the Bible, he he reasons out what the remedy for this is. It's in Corinthians 2, verse 7. He said, I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Apostle Paul, so much going on, so many, so many dilemmas, so much to think about, so, much, so many plans, so much busyness, and yes, in order for him to find God, he reached a, re- I reached a point in his life where he said, I've just, the only way for me to do this, for me to get to a point where I'm really useful, is just to forget everything else and think on Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I'm trying to, trying to explain to you guys how I think, how we can think like little children, how we can unlearn stuff, how we can detox ourselves. The only way I can think to describe it to you is that we need to stop everything when we come before him to worship and just think on the person of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here today, there will have been a point in your life where you did that. You just got to the point where you thought on Jesus Christ. He was the only thing you were thinking about. And all that really mattered was, do I have faith in this guy? and you would have said a prayer to God accept, you know, talking about your sin and accepting him to your life I would encourage you just now as we, as we plot our pathway through worship and what worship is to drop everything to do a deconstruction of your life and go back to the point where you just had to look at Jesus you had to think about the cross and you had to say right is this, is this something I believe is this something that's real to me or is it not and if it is and I think we're on our way to worship. One final point. And then our, our service is over. Thanks for listening so well. It's been, uh, it's been great. The argument goes on um, for, these, for these religious leaders. This, the, the children are praising God and, and the religious leaders are looking down at them going, do you hear what these children are saying? So, so to their ears, this is heresy. This is, this is a moment where kids are saying the ridiculous thing. And, and maybe you've been in that moment where your, your kids or you've heard kids say something like, I hate you, or I'm never being your friend again, or this tastes like poo, or something like that, something awful like that. And, and you're waiting for that moment. When that gets said, you can let it go so long, and then you're waiting for the parental in- intervention. The grown-up has to come in and say, no, we can't talk like that. And that's what these, these religious leaders are expecting. They're saying, look, have you heard what these, these children are saying? They're saying that you are God. Are you going to tell them that 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 they've got it wrong, that they've been ridiculous? And Jesus uses this phrase that I guess is the one phrase that I'd like us to stick to and, and remember. He says, yes, I've heard them. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? This Part of that saying might have floated around your house for a bit. Maybe your, your granny might have said that, all oh, out of the mouth of babes. And what she means is sometimes kids stumble upon the absolute truth and just call it out and say it like it is. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, in fact, he's saying more than that. He's saying, kids, just call it out and say it like it is, and God had planned it that way. In fact, he's saying even more than that. See what rabbis used to do. There was a trait that they would use. It's called stringing pills. It's really worth a look. It's, to a Bible geek like me, it's actually really interesting. Maybe not. You know, maybe that's not your thing. But it's really. I, I, I would encourage you to look at it. Stringing pearls, where the rabbis would just give you a snippet of a verse. They'd just read out a little bit of it, and because of the culture, you'd know the whole backstory. Like I overheard a guy saying the other day, he was. Um, it was an altercation with a, with, a, with a woman, and he turned around and he said, Oh, this woman's not for turning. He said like that. And he wasn't just saying that this woman wasn't for turning around. He was like, he was calling out the whole backstory of Margaret Thatcher and a bunch of other stuff. There was a whole backstory there that you could kind of feed off. And when Jesus says, out of the mouths of infants and babes you have ordained praise, he's like drawing their attention to a whole backstory. And these religious leaders are thinking over, what is Jesus saying? What does he mean? And you can go and find it in Psalm 8. Jesus is is digging at this. It's it's, it's more of an insult than they, they were ever expecting. Oh Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of infants and babes you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. So these religious experts aren't just getting a bit of an insult. They're getting a huge insult. They're getting... This was done in order that you would be completely silenced. What is Jesus claiming at this point? In, in the midst of this Passion Week, just before he's about to die, where the, where the might of the world seems very much to be in the power of the Roman Empire, and Jesus is about to be crucified, Jesus is getting, you know, beaten up and all the rest of it. Jesus is saying, that even in these circumstances, God will raise up, through humble means, Praise of his name, but not just praise of his name, a foundation on which all hope will be found. These little children in this temple singing Hosanna when nobody else saw that that was Jesus, God had ordained that moment. Paul says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. This church that we're a part of, this faith that some of us have got, that will get rubbished in the workplace and everything else, that will make us look small and weak sometimes. This is God's ordained plan. This is the foundation he will build his kingdom on. As I look down at you guys bringing a child into the world right now, and when I think about the last, I don't know, I could say the last month, could say the last year, could say the last 10 years of troubles, I think, man, when you've got a babe in your arms, you don't watch the news the same way, do you? It changes completely how you watch the news. And yet, think on this little story, think on these children that sing praise to God and think on this promise that Jesus makes. Jesus says, this will ever be thus. This will always be the case. God's voice, God's kingdom, God's hope and God's power will continue to go out through the mouths of infants and babes. It will continue to go out in humble fashion. His church will not be crushed by scientific thought or political rejection or anything else it will continue and there will always be hope and the rulers of this world will be indignant but because God has ordained it because his spirit has made it so there will always be a small voice in the world somewhere able to say Jesus saves